The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, turn up the cool and turn down the suck. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 436 with guest Kathleen Dollard, recorded live Tuesday, March 31st, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Teller, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Data Dynamics. Makers of ActiveReports.net, simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET Web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who promises to give up making promises... Carl Franklin! Thank you very much and welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin in New London, Connecticut, which is halfway between Boston and New York on the coast of Connecticut. And Richard Campbell out there in Vancouver. Hey, Richard. Howdy, sir. How are you? Here we are again. I'm. Yeah, we seem to keep doing this. It's almost uh, habit forming. Yeah, I don't know. I have nothing thing. to say. I really, I got nothing. Here we are. <laughs> Uh, it's springtime here, so I'm battling allergies. So actually, I'm I'm higher than a kite, higher than a sherpa on crack. There you go. I got yeah, yeah. I got Sudafed and Claritin and Reactin, and they're all in me at once. Hmm. Just don't smoke it. You'll be okay. Uh, there you go. You know the 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 ritual that me and my brother have, have been doing ever since we could shave and grow a beard is uh, winter beards, and mine came off on the first day of spring. So it, you know, I was beginning to look like Santa Claus there for a while. Yeah, you were pretty fuzzy the last time I saw you. Yeah, so it's all gone. Oh, well. Not a bad thing. Let's get into Better Know Framework. Right. Better Know Framework is this this little place uh, in the show where I shine a spotlight or a flashlight on a little dark corner of the .NET Framework. A class or a namespace or an interface or just something, and the idea is it's not training, but through osmosis you might learn something. So uh, we've been talking about WPF. Controls, or more specifically, system.windows.controls, that namespace. And we're looking at the media element class, which represents a control that contains audio and or video. Cool. The remarks say, when distributing media with your application, you cannot use a media file as a project resource. In your project file, you must instead set the media type to the content property, uh, or content, I don't know what uh, that is, and set copy... It's probably an enumeration. And set copy to output directory to uh, preserve newest or always. Uh, Media element can be used in different modes depending on what is driving the control, independent mode or clock mode. When used in the independent mode, the media element is analogous to an image and source URI can be directly specified. In clock mode, the media element can be thought of as a target for an animation and thus it will have corresponding timeline and clock entries in the timing tree. And there's more, and there's a great example in XAML in the documentation, and uh, also in uh, VB, and also in C-sharp. 
media element. Awesome. Yeah. Know it, live it, love it, learn it. Richard, you must have an email. I have an email, and it's a real great one. I'm, I'm really pleased that Chris sent this to us because it's something I've been thinking about. Uh, hi, guys. I've been listening to a fair few of your podcasts recently, and I especially enjoyed the James Whitaker interview. That was one on testing. It got me thinking about testing and another hot topic going around these days, domain-specific languages, and I was wondering what others thought of it. Let's face it, NUnit and all the alternatives have reached their pinnacle, and everything from now on seems so minor it's barely worth mentioning. I read that a big thing that will be happening in NUnit will be the use of extension methods to turn, and now he writes some code, assert.r equal sub obj1 comma obj2 into obj1 dot should dot equal to sub obj2 which garners a big who cares now, from me now we promised we wouldn't read code on this show back in the uh, earliest of days and that's yes. just that's just bad well but you know he, he brings up a salient point here which is, is i you know is this really that much of a change yeah uh, there's some merits to the to his point either way actually i kind of like uh, the fact that you can put an extension method on for testing no, sure. but let me continue this leads me to think of where we go from here. And I realize that testing is the ideal domain to create a language for. I think that by trying to create languages for testing, let's call it T-sharp, that we can gather some useful information, even if it's decided not to go through with for the language. Oh, yeah. For example, should tests be done in dynamic or static languages? If our library is static, why should our tests be static? Right. Should tests be object-oriented or functional? Again, why should our tests conform to the same paradigm as our code? And should the testing paradigm be different on purpose from the program's paradigm? If our code is object-oriented, should we test in functional and vice versa? It would make us think of our programs from a different perspective and perhaps give more of a black box testing experience. A couple more points. Other advantages to going into a testing language. From an education point of view, as James Whitaker pointed out, how should we teach testing? At university, my experience with people teaching me tests were the old manual test tables and one lecturer telling us to use JUnit for an assignment without teaching us anything about it. Teaching testing is hard, but teaching a language is something we've already done. So if we teach T-sharp and it is taught by showing how to test, then we would have a good solution for t education. And making it easier to express testing ideas. One small idea I had with this was during a test, it is there is often a state you need to check. T-sharp would provide a mechanism for checking it after every line so you don't have to have every second line as an assert. And finally, a chance to redefine the unit I've always thought of as unit test, which was a bit of a misleading name. A unit test generally corresponds to a method. And in that unit test, there are multiple test cases. So really, a test case should be considered the unit. Don't get me wrong. I think that knowing what tests a method is very important. But by redefining to a test case, we can then link it to bug tracking better and say, this particular test tests this particular bug. Again, I really enjoyed the show. Keep up the good work. Chris McGrath. Chris. Chris, I totally agree. No, wait. I totally disagree. No, wait. Wait. Hold on. Actually, there's a couple of points here I really grab onto. One is I think domain-specific languages are an awesome opportunity for building a testing language. I think it's inevitable. It's logical. I think this stuff's already in the works, sure. honestly. Uh, and yeah, I think we need a better training practice. I think you make all good points here, and I'm, I'm looking forward to doing more stuff around testing as this stuff starts to advance. I think we're going to see some really cool things in Studio 2010 around testing. So thanks for your email. A mug is on its way to Australia. And if you've got any questions, concerns, ideas for shows, criticisms, you like the way uh, Carl's beard looked, send us an email, .net rocks at franklins.net. Yeah. And uh, before we introduce Kathleen, just another uh, reminder, in this down economy, if you're a SharePoint developer and you're looking for work, there's some good opportunities going on in New York, London, Toronto, and in Dubai. Uh, with Infusion Development. If you're interested in that, send me your resume, carl at franklins.net, and I will pass that on to the guys down there. So, on to our guest, Kathleen Dollard. She's been here before. You know her. Uh, she is now the chief technologist for AppVenture, appventure.com, building relationships that leverage our application generation experience to speed and improve your application development. She's been a Microsoft MVP for 11 years and is a member of the iNetis Speakers Bureau. Kathleen's worked extensively with application code generation 
and is the author of Code Generation and Microsoft.net from A-Press. She's published numerous articles on a range of .NET technologies and writes the monthly column Ask Kathleen in Visual Studio Magazine. Kathleen is also active in the Northern Colorado.NET Special Interest Group, Denver Visual Studio User Group, and the Northern Colorado Architects Group, and IASA Denver. Welcome back, Kathleen. Hi, how are you doing today? Just ducky. Good. The weather's good, you know? The weather's beautiful here. And that's enough. That's enough to make a good day. Yeah, except I won't be outside enough. And we were all together not that long ago at Dev Connections in Orlando. We were. We were, and I came home, and I don't know if, if you heard this or not, but I was in Orlando wearing sandals and a tank top, and that was great when the plane took off. However, the plane landed in an out-and-out blizzard, and so uh, it only yeah. lasted a few hours, but that is the conditions I was going to my car in, yeah. and I was waiting <laughs> for the parking bus in, and all those kinds of fun things. And yes, I did get home without uh, freezing to death or crashing, but it was, a, uh, it was an interesting day. I froze to death as soon as we got above 20,000 feet, you know, because <laughs> I was going to Connecticut, and you know, I took a nap, and I woke up absolutely freezing. Oh. Anyway, so the last show you were on, um, we were talking about your list of changes to what we perceived as an object. Right. That was the rethinking object orientation work, and I, I still talk about uh, that subject, but I've gotten away from the list because I think the list got kind of boring. Oh, there's a lot, a lot of stuff to think about there. There is. Um, I, I've been doing more work to try to uh, both focus in on the things that most matter for us to, to take a look at and putting them in some uh, perspectives. So I now have um, a way that I, that I present that, which is um, looking at what would be a logical object and, and looking at how complex it is today. And, and a logical object like a customer, that may involve uh, 20 different pieces of code in different places. So it's gotten quite complex compared to where we started out. Wow. Um, I did that in Orlando, and I got a, a really interesting analogy from one of, my, uh, one of the attendees, a guy named uh, Robert Dawson. Uh, he, was, he sent me an email on this afterwards because he said it just got him thinking, and, and it was, it's the kind of talk that that's my intention. If the people walk out of the room and they're thinking, I did my job. Yeah. And so uh, he said that we have a tendency to think of classes kind of from a historical and a habit perspective as though they're billiard balls and that they're anything but billiard balls. They're actually more like human beings with the complex kinds of interactions human beings have as opposed to the kind of bang off of each other kind mm. of interactions that billiard balls have. I thought huh. it was such an awesome analogy. Yeah. So, yeah. But uh, yeah, also they, that idea that they evolve, that they, things change in them. They, you know, I don't even want to go down the inheritance metaphors. That could get a little touchy. Yeah, but they do evolve. Um, so, so classes are going to change as we work with them, and not just as we work with them. Now with extension methods, as other people work with them, and I'm doing a lot of work in the, with uh, managed extensibility framework for Microsoft, the MEF uh, stuff. I'm a MEF head now. And so uh, within that, that, we're also looking at redesigning, redesigning objects to play in a very loose space, to play in a space where they really don't know who they're playing with. They're just presenting their interface and saying, do to me what you, what you need to do. And so it's a very different, there's all these really deep differences um, in how we code. And definitely the ongoing evolution is, is one of them. I always, I, I remember the, those, I mean, this is history, but I remember the first looking at objects, which didn't happen for me until I think it was Visual Basic. I wasn't one of the small talk people, and actually, no, that's not true. I mean, I did a little bit of C++ before, but it was only like debugging and very cursory stuff. I really started programming objects in Visual Basic, and of course, they weren't real. You know, we didn't have we didn't have interfaces or anything like that in the very early days. But but uh, I do remember the the whole idea was about modeling the physical world and modeling all of the things that that are in the system. And it wasn't until we started talking about business objects where we had these utility objects. The two are totally different. So uh, They are. And in terms of modeling the physical world, um, now if we have a particular item, a customer, an invoice, or an invoice line item, that's still a useful metaphor. It's still a very important thing. And I, I call that a generally a logical object, because mm. I haven't come up with a really good phrase for it. It is an entity, but that kind of has some baggage with it. But um, we can still model that and how those things work together. But once we get inside of it, it's just not a single class anymore. It's, it's a very complex thing inside of it. 
um, giving with with a lot of um, it serves many masters. So even IntelliSense, we have to think about when we're designing our class. We have to think about what it's going to look like in a property um, dialogue if it's ever going to appear there. We have these many masters and many things that we have to worry about from that perspective of that one simple that one simple concept of customer or dog or cat or whatever you want to think about in working with modeling some real-world piece. I also think people went a little too crazy with the inheritance stuff. Well, inheritance is a... There's two different ways to look at inheritance. One is inheritance of the logic in the logical world, and so that's when you say whether a customer inherits from a person and a person inherits from a... Um, from a, a party, and a party inherits from something else. And I definitely think you can go too far along that route. Yes, you can. Inheritance is critical to us, though, when we're looking inside of that con- customer concept, and we have a, uh, in my case, we have a handcrafted uh, cl- uh, class, and then we have a generated class, and generally I've got a facade class at the project level and then another class at the at the organizational level to help uh, do some project specific work, and then up this gene- then we hit generics, and then we hit a base class, and I'll have about four four to five classes between the leaf class and where I get back to system dot object. Now I get a huge amount from that. That gives me a lot of reuse. It gives me a lot of consistency, and I get a lot of payback. So inheritance in the functional pragmatic sense of how we build a logical object is very very important. When we step out of that and we're looking at how objects interact. Um, inheritance can be a bit fragile. It's it's definitely um, a highly coupled model, and I've moved largely away from it. It's it's pretty uncommon in my business objects that that would be other than a very rare case to do yeah. that kind of um, inheritance of the logical unit. And, and and the pain being simply that as you rev the app, you're dealing with this tight coupling, and it's very hard to change things and not just get yourself into a, a Gordinian knot. Right. Right. And, you know, I think it's good if let's just step back just one second and let's just talk about just for a second about tight coupling and loose coupling, because I think it's sort of a spectrum. And and I have to say it's been very challenging for me recently to move closer to the loose side of the spectrum, to be really very, very looser than I used to be by a long shot. Um, But on the tight coupling side, the reason we don't want that is because then when we change something, it affects more of our system than we intended to affect. We intend to affect A, but because of the tight coupling, we're also affecting B, C, and D. And this makes all of our changes um, extremely complex because then when we go into just B, well, B, um, it, has a depend- you know, it has a tight coupling, not just to A, C, and D, but also E, F, and G. And we can wind up with systems that are nearly impossible to change because of tight coupling. So it's one of the biggest negatives we can put into our systems. And I used to be sort of what I would now consider kind of middle of the road on coupling. I mean, I, I didn't couple um, except you know, when it, except when it made sense, I guess. And, and then, it, then I coupled. And moving into the MEF world where everything is just a part and it has no coupling at all, everything's based on string, comp, uh, string contracts, has been a big shift for me uh, to go that direction. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our friends at Telerik. And when it comes to testing web applications, usually you have two options. Do it manually, which is hard and takes forever, or use automated testing software, which is quite expensive and rarely does a good job with modern Ajax applications. And all of this is destined to change with Telerik's new automated testing solution, Web UI Test Studio, which promises to bring a new era of automated testing to the masses. The product is offered in partnership with Art of Test, the experts in quality assurance technologies. Telerik Web Test Studio is specialized for testing ASP.NET applications, especially ones with rich Ajax and client-side functionality. What's more, it's fully integrated in both Visual Studio Team Suite and Professional Edition, making it easy for developers and QA to collaborate. To top it off, the studio ships with special wrappers for the Telerik Ajax controls, which expose control-specific test actions. Web UI Test Studio is ready for the future, with Silverlight testing features coming soon. Check it out at telerik.com. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Now, you brought up MEF twice, M-E-F, just to, just to... You've done a show on that, haven't she you? She wasn't talking about MEF, M-E-T-H, which is what no. everybody would probably hear if they've never heard of 
meth. But uh, yeah, we did a show with Glenn Block on meth. And yeah. just tell us briefly what it is. And also, I'd like to hear about how you uh, use that in your in your product, Cogen Harness. Yeah, and, and uh, I want to clarify one thing here. AppVenture has actually two products, two, two pieces of code, two big things, and they're extremely different. They came from different lineages. And the AppVenture Foundation, which is the, the tool that we, that we work with, that's our, that's our commercial tool that's the core of our, our consulting and partnership. That was actually built by other people, and it's so good, it's why I went to work for them. Now, there's another piece, which is our community generation harness, and that I wrote. And so that's the one we'll be talking about. It's freely downloadable with source code, and as soon as we have a community I'm comfortable with, I'm going to put it out as open source. But I have one orphaned um, uh, open source project right now, and I do not want to create another one. And so I don't want to put it open source until we're sure it's going to live. All right, well, remind us what MEF is. Yes, okay, so let's go back and start there, and then I'll talk a little bit more about the code generation and why this is important. So okay. MEF stands for Managed Extensibility Framework, and it's something that's coming out from Microsoft, and it's going to kind of leak out slowly. Um, it's being used internally in the Visual Studio 2010 editor. So there's aspects of it that are probably getting somewhat, you know, I wouldn't say locked down, but they're, they're kind of, we're going the right direction with it. But it's a pre-CTP, if you can imagine that. This is not even at an alpha basis yet. But Microsoft's building on it, so obviously there's some parts of it that are, that are solid. And I think some of the reasons are that just projecting from, you know, how you can imagine it, it working, that it's going to have dependencies on .NET 4.0. So rather than waiting and letting us have it when .NET 4.0 came out, they released it now as a, um, a, a tool. It's, it's all the source code is there. It's fully available. You go to CodePlex and you pick it up and you can use it. Now, you have to assume that there will be changes, but if you can't accommodate those changes when they come out, you can stick on the, pre- on the current library and only go forward under your control. So that's the benefit of this, um, this source code-based open source piece that's out there right now because it is in your control uh, to work with it. So... What it actually is, um, I like to describe it, and for some reason I get the image of a tiddlywink board, and I don't know why, but um, it, it's, like a, a, it's like a space, a circle, whatever you want to think of as a space that you put parts into. Now, parts yeah. interact with each other, and the best way to think about the way parts behave is to think about it, a, a room full of like kindergarten kids. And, and if, you've, um, if you've ever been around kindergartners, they love raising their hands and shouting a lot. Right. And so, one little part is going to raise its hand and it's going to say, I need, I need a crayon. I need an invoice. I need right. a file output. And then the other parts that can do that, they raise their hands and they go, I can do that. I can do that. And so then we have this relationship between two completely decoupled things to get the job done. So um, in the case of the code generation, you need to hook into this, obviously, the hook into it is to grab everything that can be a template. That's the hook that I'm using. So I pick up all of the parts that can act as templates, and I start running them. And whatever they need, so for instance, one of them might need a list of data tables because it's going to output select store procedures, and so it needs data tables. So it's going to say, I need data tables. Well, something, another part out there is going to say, well, I've got data tables. Here you go. You can go ahead and generate. And this works when we're, that's the relationship between a template and its metadata, but it also works between the, the template harness and how it's going to output code, how it's going to interact with T4, which is a very complex internally uh, job to accomplish, and all these individual little pieces you just throw in there. Now, the reason that matters, and it fundamentally changes what it means to write an application, is because this is a space. It's not an application. All you have to do, if you don't like something I did, you don't like how I produce data tables because you want to get them from Oracle instead of from SQL Server, or you don't like how I output files, or you don't like something else, no problem. All you do is you write your part, and it's very small and self-contained, and you've got my source code to copy from, and you drop that in, and you use it instead. And so it's truly an ecosystem. It's not an application with extensibility points. It's a true drop-in, in. it's an ecosystem. Everybody can only talk to each other by raising their hand and shouting, I need something, and waiting to see who responds. So I think it's pretty cool. It's sort of a nice uh, metaphor for an application, an ecosystem, truly. But it also hints to this idea of a very different way of writing code going forward. You know, this is a whole other kind of state engine. It, it is. It's, it's, a really, it's a really different way to approach it. And we, you can also imagine this in the editor. 
So within the Visual Studio 2010 editor, there's something called a classifier. And a classifier says this word means something. It's a keyword. It's, a, it's, a, it's an operator. It means something. And so we can both, you know, have our, the, the Visual Studio editor says, who can determine classifiers? Who can tell me what all the classifications are for this one word I'm looking at right now? And so if you want to have an additional classification within that editor, all you do is you write a part and you drop it in, and it'll pick up your classifier too. Yep. And then when it goes to display those, the same thing happens with the renderer for that classifier. So if you want something bold and something else wants it to be in a block or to be something or to be a color, then both of those can work together because the renderers can interact. It's really cool. I've always loved that plug-in model, and that just takes it to the nth. This, this is the this is the plug-in extensibility add-in. All these models we've been playing with take it. Yeah. I, I think close to its final point. This really is just drop it in. Um, we're working on, on string-based contracts. There's a little bit of strong typing. Um, that's been, I, I think we're going to get a little bit of strong typing back in because um, we, we kind of, it's, a, it's a pendulum. We went just a little too far, I think, in the CTP, and that may come back a little bit in the next few, uh, in the next few iterations. So while uh, we were at Dev Connections, um, did you see Javal Lowy's keynote? I did. That was totally awesome. I was just, it was just great keynote, great. Uh, the whole concept of the energy net coming in as the, the, uh, he called it a killer app, but it's, it's a killer ecosystem, really. And when you look back, he gave, I don't remember what they all were, but he gave, um, you know, kind of the killer apps for each decade that we well, let's had. Let's back up a little bit and tell everybody yeah. what basically his thing was all about. Uh, the smart grid, sort of. Power grid. Well, it, it, it's, a, it's a power grid in a, in a very big way. So... The basic problem, and, and I've been in, in this space for, for a while, both my, my father and my sister actually were professionals in, in the uh, alternative energy and energy conservation spaces. The, the problem is we simply don't have enough energy, period, end of discussion. We wind up continuing to have problems with the Middle East. It happens faster, but it's only a matter of pace. It's not a matter of ultimate problem. There is not enough energy um, there is a tipping point. We will be going downhill on energy. Right. We have to rework things. Right. And the way the energy grid works, and many people don't understand this, is that um, electricity, you know, you know that you turn the light switch on and it's just right there. But to do that, the grid has to, to some degree, we'll kind of be fluffy here, act as like a giant battery. But the demands on it go up and down phenomenally based on weather, time of day, all these different things. The ultimate scalability problem. It is, it is such a scalability problem. And this is why we have brownouts and blackouts in California when people need to run their air conditioners. And so the basic, the basic idea that he's talking about, and he's tapping into other people's, you know, other people's work, he's just drawing sure. a lot of things together into this vision, is that we have smart appliances and smart houses. And if the grid is about to go down, the cost of electricity coming into our house is going to go through the roof before the grid shuts down because it's, it's a disaster for the grid to shut down. So it will become so expensive. Our houses will be smart enough to say, I didn't need to be cool that badly. So my house may be set at 68 or 72, and it just shuts down the air conditioner because I don't want to pay that much money for that air conditioner at that time because now the price has gone through its, its 10 times or 50 times what it normally is because it's in a crisis mode. But I, I like the idea of working this as a use case sort of scenario that that a that the consumer doesn't figure out what temperature to set his thermostat to. He says, I'm willing to spend $300 a month on AC and that's it. And right. the device now chats with the power grid, figures out how much power is and when, and then sort of smooths out the bumps of when we can do cooling and how much cooling we should do. And it, you know, is able to project those costs. Absolutely. I think that's the biggest, the, the biggest problem with the grid is you've got very, very high highs and very, very low lows and you want to smooth right. those things out. And so adding some intelligence so that dishwashers run when the power is cheapest because you don't need your dishes washed. Now, yeah, washers and dryers. Tomorrow, dryers take up an extreme amount of electricity. Sure, right. And when we when we look at the um, at, at the interaction with the grid, then we not only can we talk about to the power company about how much it's going to cost. We can talk to the weather service about what's coming, 
and we can look at history, and we can look at our own schedule in Outlook about when we're expected to be home. We can look at whether or not we're planning trips and need to charge our cars, and whether or not our, our kids are going to be bringing home, well, I was about to say grandkids. I don't have grandkids yet, but there's going to be some unusual situation, and we can make all those decisions to manage our energy, which will include our cars as we look across the next decade, and we can manage all this energy for our benefit and the grid's benefit. And it's, it's necessary. The driver is for the grid because the option is so much more expensive. Um, we can't build new power plants from both a political uh, point of view. It's very difficult to, from an environmental and the political point of view, and we want to take some inefficient plants offline. And they come online to handle these spikes. And so the more that we can do this, the better it is for every front possible, whether it's carbon footprinting or whether it's the cost that you pay for energy or whether it's the expense of the grid. All of those things are dependent um, on us better using energy. And it also, and, and I don't, didn't know a whole lot about feeding um, self-generated energy back to the grid other than it, you, know, you could right. do it. Turns out you need this kind of control to be able to, to take up energy, micro-energy that's produced on people's rooftops when they don't need it anymore. You've all made this point very clearly that, they, that the whole grid upgrade is beneficial without in, adding any new alternative power sources or anything like that. Like that just means we'll actually consume net less power because we'll do it so much more intelligently. Not that we're turning stuff off, but just that we're smoothing out the bumps. But uh, the yeah. other aspect of this is that micro-generation you want to feed that once you have the grid it's easy to feed your windmill into the system and have your house decide when to use your windmill or when it makes more sense to sell it back and you right. don't have to figure that out it just happens yeah that the more stuff that can be yeah exactly and i was thinking of the you know your house knows when you're there by the amount of movement right that that it can find with sensors and it, for that for those reasons it can automatically turn off lights when you're not there or, or turn only some lights on but also, I was getting back to this dryer thing. You know, the, the dryer takes up probably the most energy of any of your appliances when it runs. And uh, if you live in a hot climate and you're using a dryer, <laughs> you know, when you have, could just put up a clothesline. I, I was just going to say, I've got a very simple solution to the dryer problem. Yeah, I do it. not own one. I don't yeah. own one. I have not owned one for over 10 years. Well, and you're in Colorado, too. You know, in some places where it's cold and wet a lot, you know, like Portland or uh, or Seattle, it might not make sense to have a clothesline. But in certainly in warmer climates, you don't need one. I mean, not a clothesline, a dryer is what I meant. <laughs> right. Well, that's true. There are places, and in, in, there's places in the country that if I lived, I would certainly um, have a dryer. And when I had young children in Houston, I did have a dryer. Um, but the other thing on that, which is really cool, is that my clothes never wear out. My child, was, who was 17, was wearing a sweatshirt, and I said, oh, this is so sweet because his brother wore that sweatshirt. I wore it when I was pregnant with yep. him, and he wore it when he was two. And my mother looks at me, and she says, I want to know who made the sweatshirt. And I'm going, my clothes never wear out. Because you dry them on the clothes. I don't line. dry them. Yeah, it was, they're not in a dryer. Well, you know the lint? Yeah. My grandmother told me this. You know what lint is? Yeah, that's your clothes. You got it. <laughs> how much, how much material your clothes have lost. <laughs> but yeah, the I mean, and the important part of this being that uh, people now will see the cost of their dryer because right now they don't see it; it's invisible to them. They only yeah. look at power as a whole. Right. So actually, being able to itemize these things break down. And you know, getting back to the point, why was you all doing this at a software development conference? Because right. this whole problem is peer-to-peer network-based software. That's and right. nobody gets it better than guys who've been doing web development. We Absolutely. understand this, and the power industry doesn't. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. And not only that, but it probably represents the, one of the biggest opportunities in the future of software development. A, a serious opportunity. I mean, this is where innovation, this is where the money's going, basically, yeah. into solving these kinds of problems. Yeah, this looks to be the next boom. Absolutely. And I will admit, I am one of the people that laughed when somebody said that my refrigerator was going to run Windows. I laughed. I want our appliances to have operating systems and be, I can download a program and run a program, not some chip that's been preset with some sort of stuff. I want, you know, some operating system, Windows or whatever, running on my dryer if I have one in my refrigerator and on my car. And I want to be able to program all of these things or have someone else drop, download a program to me. So yeah. this 
can evolve because the internet worked because we could change what was sitting on people's computers. And we'll have, this is the direction we have to go with this. Yeah. And you've all described it as it's in, in terms of the industry compared to the internet industry, it's 1992. And there's a few nutballs out there who get it, but most of us don't. And in a couple right. more years, it's going to be abundantly clear. And the ones who are in early are going to do very well for themselves. So I've been following this stuff. Richard and I have talked a little bit about it on the downturn shows that we did for uh, MSDN. But um, the uh, there's a, been a huge boom in both the efficiency and the, the cost, lowering the cost of solar cells in the last five, six years. And the, the real breakthrough has come where um, instead of using silicon wafers, uh, people have been able to manufacture a paint that has nanoparticles in it that can be printed with a standard printer, like an inkjet printer, essentially. It prints out solar cells based with, with these nanoparticles in it that can be just manufactured ridiculously cheaply. And at, at the same time, the efficiency of of solar panels has incredibly gone up uh, just in the last few years because because people are finally getting serious about it. There's a company in uh, California called NanoSolar that um, has a factory online, and they're spitting these things out, and it's just a matter of time before you'll be able to buy them at Home Depot. I'm not sure if you can already. Maybe you can. It's, it, we're still, we still have a ways to go in terms of the production scale on this stuff. Uh, my sister uh, works for uh, Colorado State University. She's their energy engineer, so, you know, massive university, you know, a million square feet under a roof and mm. all this stuff. And so she um, keeps a pretty close eye on that. And we're, we're, the, the curve is going the right way. It's not quite there yet, right. but it will be there where it's going to be practical for at least, well, I don't know how much new housing we're going to have, but at least new housing and probably retrofitted housing um, to start having some serious solar on it. If I'm buying a house, I'll tell you I will not buy one that doesn't have a roof that's oriented towards the south. Well, and that, yeah, and, and it's east, not, not just big it. panels anymore is what I'm getting at. You, no, it's Shingles. Not. They no. have shingles that you can put up that just look like shingles that are, that are solar panels. They have paint. So you right. can paint the south-facing side of your, put the particles in the paint right. and connect it to the grid. Right. It's ridiculous. Which is also, it's also important for damage from wind and hail. Living in Colorado, um, you know, your, your, your insurance agent is not dying for you to put an extra $20,000 worth of glass on your roof. Um, this is not generally a, a good idea in Colorado. Yeah. So, yeah. So also, the, uh, the, other, the other thing uh, that people talk about in cities is, you know, all, the, all of the roofs that are painted black, you know, with tar and stuff, just attract right. so much more heat. Paint them white. Or yes. better yet, put, uh, put uh, gardens on top of the roof, and that 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 goes a long way towards insulating the the building. Right. Well, anyway, these are things that we don't usually talk about on .NET Rocks, but I, I'm thoroughly convinced that you, everybody needs a cursory knowledge of this stuff, just like we need a knowledge of standard business practices. Just because this is what this is what we're all going to be working on very soon. Right. I think well, some of us anyway. We're going to be make this a is lot where of money us. is going to be anyway. It, it is. That's the, yeah. This is where the money is going to be. So, yeah, there's one other growth area that, that a few people get involved in, and that is we're about to do our, um, have a huge change in the way that we report our hazardous materials. Um, anyone who knows what a material safety data sheet is in MSDS, uh, they actually go away. And so, that, so every single piece of reporting around um, hazardous materials is going to change within the next three years. So there's a few other ones that are, are happening at the same time. You uh, also were the track chair on the green IT track? I was. So what was that all about? Well, uh, Dev Connection started um, a green IT track. We did it at the IT show, and uh, we, we, we shrank it down um, a little bit for a number of reasons, including the fact that I didn't really decided that being gone the entire month, month of March wasn't going to work very well for me. Um, and so we, we had a couple of talks on that, particularly around this um, uh, some of the hazardous materials sides of things. And... Uh, we're hoping, we don't have it set yet, to uh, do that again in Las Vegas, which will give, uh, it's a really good place for it because developers actually have a tremendous role to play here. Um, the, you know, what goes on in the data center, we ultimately drive, and that's one of our big energy use users. And we also, uh, we, we want to start working on a little bit more respect on, on the waste that we're generating. Um, and that means trying to work with uh, rolling over machines less often and we look merely at the cost of that new machine, which is now next to nothing. And we need to look at full life cycle stuff, both in IT and uh, on the developer side. 
So because those are co-located um, in Las Vegas, we're hoping to get uh, back into that, talk more about the Energy Net, um, which Duval you know, introduced us to, brought that uh, to the world through Dev Connections, and uh, we hope to come back to that, do some stuff on um, the hazardous waste changes, do some stuff on what the hazardous waste is that we actually generate directly as an IT industry, and talk about telecommuting, and talk about uh, the whole cloud. Cloud actually uh, may go. The, the reason I keep looking at cloud going, why is it different than the last three times we tried it, and it failed three times before, so why will it not fail this time? And the in- answer may be energy. It is so much cheaper to manage the energy on a data center than it is locally that that may be the driving force. Not just the energy, but uh, just cheaper in general, equipment, licenses, everything. For a startup company today, if you're not using the cloud, you're at a serious disadvantage. Right, but, you know, we had application service providers a long time ago, and that market did not take off, and everybody said it was going to, and it didn't. And so um, I still remain slightly skeptical on the cloud. It certainly has its place, and it um, and application service providers had their place, too. Um, but I, I don't know whether it's going to be this gigantic change for all of us, even though it will certainly continue to be the right way for people to get their initial data centers uh, up and running. Yeah, I don't think companies. so, but I agree with you that, that, that uh, you know, if you're just starting out because the cost to, for entry is so low, that, right. that it's a great way to be economical and, and get your stuff out there. Well, even the, the cost of regular hosting is stunningly low right now, too. It is. Compared to just a few years ago, the they buying a server and sticking it online is just cheap. Yeah. Come to yeah. think of it, the cost of machines is really cheap now, yeah. too. Yeah, it, it, it is. It's, it's amazing. Um, I bought my son um, a laptop. It's a, you know, it's a dual-core, quad-core, 64-bit, you know, Vista laptop, you know, 17-inch, nice, nice, nice box. And uh, the cost for that box, it was on sale, so we got a decent deal for it, but the cost for the box was $600, and because he's a kid, we went ahead and went with all those extra warranties, the drop-it kind of warranties and all that from the store, and the warranty was half the cost of the machine. It cost us $900, but that included $300 worth of warranty. So wow. that was just hysterical. Wow. So, yeah. And we, we are definitely in an interesting place from a hardware point of view, the commoditization of hardware. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. You know, you. I'm going to jump back a little bit here, but I know you're the code generation queen. You're crazy about this technology, and I just wanted to set it in context with MEF. Do the two things go together? MEF and code generation are are two entirely different things that work very well together. They <laughs> are. Uh, MEF is a way to uh, to design a um, something at runtime. So it's an application. It's a way to turn parts of the application into an ecosystem. Now, it also can be used, uh, for instance, if somebody's delivering an application that has a bunch of different modules and they don't want to deliver all the modules, they only want to deliver what someone's paid for, MEF is a very good mechanism for doing that. So it's got a lot of different um, broad-scale uses all around runtime. And code generation is your design time experience. It's how you're going to build your application at a design time. So they're quite different um, in that sense, but at design time, we need a tool that runs, and therefore I'm using MEF for that tool. I'm using T4. That's another thing that a lot of people don't know about. Can we talk about T4? Absolutely. So um, do you know what T4 is? I just found out and quickly forgot. Oh, okay. Well, the cool thing about T4 right now is I get to talk about it, and I get to say it's on your machine right now. If you've got Visual Studio 2008, you have T4, and most people don't know it. They don't know that they have a code generation language on their machine sitting there just waiting for them to use. And the, the funny thing about this is Microsoft put it into Visual Studio with, like, zero support. I mean, they have one tiny piece of support that means that it's not 100% useless, but it is so small. So they gave it to us. There's no editor. You can't create a – there's no, um, like – like type you can create, you have to create a text type and lie to it about its extension. You, um, there's, the way that you run it does not allow you to pass any parameters or to interact with the system. It's just really, really minimal. So it's cool technology we can't use. You can't. You, <laughs> you just need to do, um, there's one thing you want to do, which is to download um, the editor from Clarius. So it's Clarius Consulting, and I had done a shrink store on that, but I can't find it. So um, I, I don't have that handy, but it's, 
It's uh, a Claris. You can just look for T4 Editor, and it comes right up. They have both a, um, a community edition for free and then a grown-up edition that has a lot of cool features. So you, so you can get an editor. You can do that for free. And then you either want to download our community generation harness or you want to look at the work that a guy named Oleg, and his last name is S-Y-C-H, and I'm assuming that's Syke, and I don't know that. So I apologize if I'm mispronouncing Oleg's uh, last name. But he's done on CodePlex the T4 toolbox. Now, T4 stands for Text Templating Transformation Toolkit. And, so wow. I, which, and then we abbreviate the acronym to T4. So it's an abbreviation for an acronym. And then he, they're adding another T on there with a toolbox. So there's a lot of T's in there. T5. But, yeah, it's five now, yeah. <laughs> so, so you want to either look at the work that, that we've got, which I'm going to have in the May Visual Studio magazine, and it's not up right now on AppVenture, but, but we will have some stuff at AppVenture.com on that. Or you want to go to the Coplex site. Um, and, and then also um, Oleg has got a great blog. And I do have a Shrinkster on that. Um, that's Shrinkster 15... O, the letter O, 8. Okay. So th- that's something people can check out because you definitely need more than what Visual Studio gives you, and those are some places you can go to get more um, information because it's really laughable. When I give a talk on this, I just go, oh, they didn't give you this, and they didn't give you that, and oh, by the way, they didn't give you this. And so it, it's really um, it's good that they gave it to us, so I'm really excited about that, but it came out of the DSL toolkit and they still perceive it as part of a DSL. And, in fact, the, the application generation we do is really not DSL-based. It, it generally isn't. And so we want to get outside of that and outside of the direct model relationship and into a more fluffy relationship. So that's fun. I mean, T4 is a good thing. I'm, I'm really excited that we've got it to play with. So walk us through a couple of scenarios of what people would typically use a T4 for. Okay, so I'm going to walk through scenarios in my world, which is an external um, harness, which like the one you can download uh, from AppVenture.com. Um, so what you're going to do is you're going to uh, start a little tiny user interface or a command line with a switch on it that points to a database. And from that, with what we'll initially have, you'll create a couple stored procedures. That's our, our first uh, step. But then you're also going to put other things into your MEF ecosystem that can create business objects, data access layers, whatever architecture you want. We're not going to initially do that because there's so many architectures out there that we don't really know which one we want to target, and we just want to kind of get going um, with it. But once you decide what your architecture is going to look like, you'll create or find templates that match that, and you'll push a button and create 80 to 90% of your application. That's really the numbers that we see with people that are serious about code generation. The problem is our tools have been so bad that people's experiences have been very bad over the last five years. I gave a talk at a private conference, and I put up a, um, a sheet, and we started writing down people's impressions, good and bad, about code generation. And we got around half the room before we had a single positive comment. And so I understand a lot of people have had a lot of frustrations with code generation, and it's really because the tools have not been there and the, and the ecosystem and the community have not been there. And I'm very optimistic that we're right on the verge of changing all of that. With T4 coming in, we've also got another way to generate code um, in Visual Basic. Uh, the Visual Basic 9 XML literals actually can create any kind of text you want as well. And they're another very powerful way to do code. We've got the tools mainstream in the language right now. You don't have to buy anything. And so I think we're right on the edge of really having some good communities um, and good, you know, a good ecosystem where you go out and you get an architecture because the vision on that, the really the amazing, the thing that just makes your head spin is that if we build spaces where we have, we'll just jump to an endpoint where we have a single ecosystem, probably eventually have to be run by somebody other than me, but you know, we've either got an open source ecosystem or we have a Microsoft ecosystem. And people can put their architectures into that ecosystem and people select them and say, oh, I want that. I want to do a CSLA architecture or I want to do some other kind of architecture. They can try them on in their application and find out what works for them, and they can change them later. Once we do that, we stop having 100,000 architectures out there, which we do today. We have between 100,000 and a million architectures sitting out there, and we wind up with about 30. And the problem just goes away. We completely change what it means to write an application because you get to worry about your problem, not the technology. Not the goo that goes around your technology. Not the goo. And we're really... 
Um, everything's pushing that direction. Um, I could, you know, there's initiatives at Microsoft, there's initiatives outside. There's a ton of things pushing us hard that direction. And at this point, we basically just need to come to the same table and sit down and chat, and we'll, we'll be there within a year if we can just get the people at the table chatting. So that's, it's, it's a big step to do that when, you know, we have somebody, uh, you know, somebody like, um, or I could pick on Scott Guthrie, I guess, somebody like that who, who perceives the world in terms of individual initiatives. And NBC and every single one of these initiatives are terribly important, but they become more important when they sit inside an interchangeable ecosystem. And, you know, that's the, once we get there, and we're just so close right now. Um, I, I got depressed for a while because I thought we'd be here in 2004, and we made <laughs> almost no progress for four years. And, and now we are making very good progress again. So I'm pretty optimistic. I think it's going to take a couple more years for us to get our act together and get, get where we're all sitting down at the table saying, what does the ecosystem look like and how do we build it because it's time to do it. Um, and we have every piece of technology ready to go as soon as human-wise we're ready. Hey, I just want to give a shout-out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActiveReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. You know, a lot of people, uh, a lot of developers have sort of abandoned code generation for the more sort of in uh, hibernate model of programming. Where to, you know, I know that these are two totally different approaches to, to uh, productivity. But um, how do you, how do you, uh, where does, um, you obviously, are you still as much into code generation as you, as you used to be? Or now have you tried the N-Hibernate approach, uh, the ORM approach? Well, they're actually not either or. You can use them together. Yeah. Um, if, you, if you want to run a, a, if you want a runtime engine running, helping you do your application, and there are benefits to that, whether it's N-Hibernate or whether it's Andy Framework version 2 or whether it's something else. If you want to do that, fine. They all need something to drive them, to tell them about your application. And whether that is um, attributes, which is something we're going away from and going to more of a POCO model, or the POCO model, it still has to go find that stuff somewhere. And the definitions of how you do your application, it's all about metadata programming. That's um, what drives the ecosystem. It's acronym stepping back. place here, uh, POCO, plain old CLR objects. Thank you. Thank you for, for grabbing that. So it means that we don't have gunk in our uh, CLR object that refers to the technology we're currently running. And I'm, I'm all for that. It's, it's a way that we're separating ourselves back out from the technology, which is ultimately what it's all about to interchange right. architectures. And when I'm talking about, you know, sitting down at a table and talking about what the ecosystem needs to look like, we're talking about how we define an application in a way that you can run N-Hibernate today, you can run CSLA tomorrow, and you can run something we haven't thought about yet the day after that. And all of those are going to interchange with things like MVC on the front end. And, and we really are on the edge. of the, Technologically, we can absolutely do it today. We still have a lot of um, territorial issues to get over in individual spaces. And right now, we don't have the leadership yet that we need. Um, you know, I scream about it. I talk about it. I dream about it. Um, but I'm just one voice, and we need uh, dozens or hundreds of voices working together. And, and we don't have that going yet. We, we will, but we're not quite there yet. And, and to be clear, T4 is just a sort of starter product, right? Like they're, they're, There's a reason I think they didn't really advertise it much. It, it isn't a lot of stuff yet. I don't know where they're going with T4. I've actually heard nothing about um, improvements in T4 in the, in the 2010 time frame. They may be there. But it's a tool that is primarily used in other products in Microsoft. So, for instance, the Entity Framework people put out T4 templates for the V1, and I believe we also have them out for Link to SQL. So in, instead of using the generation within the code DOM, if you want to make changes to that, you can grab these T4 templates and make your own changes. Now, that's an indication of where those groups are going because that was not done by the external community. That was done by core, you know, mainstream members of those two product teams. It's built to go within DSL, and so it therefore has to sit behind M. We've got to have a way to make artifacts from this new, you know, this new uh, interest in DSLs. Um, so T4 will continue to have a big role there. But what should a generator look like? This is a huge question, and there's actually one thing I'll mention in my 
uh, column is that there's three big ways that you can generate code. They're fundamentally different. And we, we don't, there's a lot about that that I think we don't know yet as an industry, and Microsoft is not putting an investment right now into putting a nice pretty front end on T4, to my knowledge. I've heard nothing about it. So I think we're going to probably be the next after, after 2010 before we really have Microsoft giving us um, a, a good framework. So what we're going to do is we're going to build it first, and Oleg is going one direction with this, and I'm going another, and we'll find out who's, we'll find out what makes sense, or we'll come together, which is what Oleg and I are working on. We're having conversations to see if we're going to come together, um, but but we'll find out what that should look like, and we'll tell Microsoft, just like uh, unit testing happened that way. Instead of it being the reverse where Microsoft tells us what we need, we'll do it. It'll be available in the community. You can have it today. And then Microsoft will come on later, and and that's okay. There's, I don't think there's nothing wrong with that model. Um, Microsoft's doing a lot of other things. Well, I'm also thinking in context of products like CodeSmith. You know, right. there's, there's other guys out there doing this, and they've been doing it for quite a while. If you really hooked on it, wouldn't it make more sense to go the CodeSmith route? For, from whose perspective? Well, I mean, from a developer's perspective, that if I'm getting oh, serious about it, CodeGen, it, why would I start with this fairly young product when I can take a fairly mature one off the shelf? Uh, well, if you were looking at a commercial uh, product, there's actually two out there that I would suggest that you take a look at, one of which is going to be CodeSmith. It's been around a long time. The good thing about CodeSmith is that there's an enormous community built up around it. And so uh, CodeSmith, that's definitely something to, that makes sense to look at. There's another product I think is uh, very worth looking at, which is Miguel Castro's tool, CodeBreeze. Right. And CodeBreeze um, is more of a harness. Um, it solves more of the application-level problems. It solves problems around things like project files. So it also has some uh, starting towards solving some governance issues, which only a handful of people on the planet can even know. I start really spinning people's heads if I start talking about um, what governance means in the in the context of code generation. But he's working in some areas like that, and so code definitely one to look at. I liked CodeBreeze. I um, did a couple shows on DNR TV with Miguel, and he showed it off. And you know, the thing that struck me about it was how extensible it is. You know, everything is configurable. Everything is configurable. Yeah. And I mean, and that's general, generally true for most code generator. It, it's, that's true. Um, and, and that's one of the, I really, I do like CodeBreeze. I, I like what I'm doing better because it's meth-based. And who knows, I I'm, I'm, would love to talk um, Miguel into, into us working uh, together. So he puts a beautiful, fabulous front end on uh, more of an ecosystem-based tool. But, but I don't know whether he's interested in that or not. I will say that um, I talked to him about T4 and its importance, and he will be the first commercial um, tool, I believe, that will support T4. So he will support both his own internal language and he will support T4 templates, and this is in the next version, not the one that's out today. Um, and that's going to be a really big positive step forward, and I think it's a big plus for, for CodeBreeze to do that. So, yeah, I, I, get a, I don't know the whole industry, but I know the people that I know, I, I try to keep up with what they're doing, and, and uh, it's all good, you know. The, the goal is metadata-based programming and eventually in a, uh, in a fluid ecosystem. Um, that's the goal. How we get there is not nearly as important. Tell us about this conference, uh, Code Generation 2009. Oh, this is so exciting. Uh, did, did you hear the story about why I'm going? No. They scheduled this con- If you can believe this, they scheduled this conference at Cambridge, which is in England, Cambridge, England. They scheduled it at, at Cambridge University the same week my son gets his marks. Now, I sort of wanted to be there when my son gets his marks, but he had already told me from ages ago, he said, Mom, you don't want to come that week. I'm planning on drinking. And so Ah. it was like, (laughs) I want to be there, but I need to be doing something else. And so the Code Generation 2009 is there, and this brings people from all over the world. It's a, um, I'm still, I haven't been there, so I have a lot to to learn about it, but it's a semi-academic conference. It's much more juried than what we're used to. Um, They they had questions about my submissions, and um, I'll be talking there about um, um, ex- extensible templates, actually, which is templates that can evolve. It's sort of an advanced topic, but this will be code generators. So we'll be talking about that, and I get to meet people from uh, Itemists over in Cologne, from all over the world, from, gosh, uh, and I'm following up with that by doing a um, about 10 days in user groups in the U.K. I'll be in... I'll be speaking in Cambridge and in uh, Edinburgh, I think either Glasgow or Dundee. I'll be in Ireland for two gigs, and I'll be in Bristol. So I'll be running all around England for uh, Great Britain, I'm sorry, for a few days. And in your own hometown, too, the Rocky Mountain Trifecta? Yeah, that's Denver. It's not my hometown. I'm Fort Collins. 
Well, close enough, you know. Yes, we're going to do that in uh, August. We got so much stuff coming up that's cool that um, it's the trifecta is cool because we're going to try a um, a day a learning to code track on there. So we're going to be starting people off there, and we don't have a date for that yet, but that's going to be coming up. Um, I'll be in England in June, so if anybody's listening in England, that's when they can look for dates there. I'm doing um, uh, a New York tour, and I'm going to be in Billings, and then I'm going to be uh, doing DevLink in Nashville, and I'll be doing a half day on code generation. So people that are listening to this and are interested um, in hearing more, one of the cool things about Nashville and DevLink is if you stick a pin at Nashville and you, draw, you take a, um, a piece of string and you draw a big circle, there are a lot of people that are 8 to 10 hours drive from Nashville. So if you're interested in a, full, in a half a day on code generation, uh, watch the DevLink site and catch up with what we're doing. And that does have a date. That's August 14th and 15th. So that will be a cool trip as well. So I'm kind of all over the place. We think we're going to be there. We're not sure, though. Um, oh, really? But we, wanna, we, we think we're going to do a panel discussion there. Oh, that'll be so cool. This DevLink is, um, it is kind of on a, um, somewhat on a code camp model, but they uh, actually are real good at getting sponsorships. So they have a bunch of people. I saw that Jim Woolley's going to be there. Oh, I'm going to forget some of the people that are going to be there. There are a ton of people. Um, I can't remember if Mark Dunn's going to be there. Just a ton of folks are going to be there. So it's going to be a really, um, a really good show. Uh, I think they've just put up their schedule. So if people want to find out uh, what's there, they can um, check that out. All right, Kathleen, it's just about a show. Thanks. Okay. Uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Always have interesting stuff to think about. Okay. You guys have a great day. Thanks again. And we'll see you next time. .net Rocks. .net Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.